Well, good morning and welcome. We started a new series this morning on the book of Exodus. Just so you know, that music from that video is a Hasidic Jewish band that's actually singing psalms in ancient Hebrew. Well, Hebrew. And so I thought it'd be very fitting for that for the uh, video. Um, this morning, we are going to start a series that's going to take us through a quite a bit of time. Now, we're going to do the book of Exodus in two parts. So we're going to do the first 18 chapters, and then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come, we're going to loop back around to the rest of it in the book in, in January, just because a the book of Exodus is, is so long, and uh, and b I think it's going to take us to a really great place where we start off to to go somewhere else too. So we're going to do the book of Exodus in two parts. Let me just recap what we talked about last week. Even though last week wasn't intentional to be our um, a prequel, it really actually turned out that it is. So last week we looked at this idea of exile. And I said to you that I thought the word exile really kind of suits our posture that we feel right now, that we feel like exiles in this world. We feel like exiles in the sense of like we have left what is comfortable and we have moved to something that is uncomfortable. And in that discomfort, we are now learning new things about ourselves and fortunately or unfortunately about other people as well too, right? So I said to you that exile, very simple definition of the word exile would be a state of displacement. But the secondary part for that is, when I think of the idea of displacement, I would say that that's God's country. And you're going to see why that is absolutely true about the book of Exodus. So this morning what I want to do is I want to kind of do an introduction to the book of Exodus. And we're going to take a look at two objections to the book, because I think it's important before we kind of study the book to understand that. And then we're going to look at kind of three questions the book of Exodus is going to continue to ask for us. But before we do that, one of the things you need to understand about the book of Exodus is, is that Exodus is one of the most important books of the Bible. Now, I know that we as Western Christians, we tend to, we get stuck on the Gospels, and again, nothing wrong for the Gospels. It's not a, this is better than this part of it. But we, we look at the Old Testament as, as ancient and, and foreign, and, and which it is. I've always said this before that Sometimes as Christians, we, 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 we portray the Bible as easy, right? We say to people, oh, just read it. And it's like, people read it like, wait, who's killing what? And, and why is this like, like it's, it's, it's like, wait, what's going on here? And again, of course, the names and the places, the, it's just, it's different. And so one of the things with the Old Testament is we as Christians, we tend to avoid the Old Testament because it just, again, it feels so foreign to us, and it is foreign to us. Uh, D.A. Carson, a theologian and a writer, says this about the book of Exodus. It is stunning how the Exodus controls a great deal of the discussion of the entire rest of the Old Testament. What's interesting about the book of Exodus is, is that it actually is, and I'll hopefully over after this morning and over the last cu next couple of weeks, but the book of Exodus is actually, it's the foundation of, of the Bible, and you'll see that in a second there. The proper use of Exodus is shaped not only by how Exodus functions in the Old Testament, but how it is picked up and is completed by what is disclosed in the New Testament. Like I said a second ago, Exodus is the foundation of the Bible, which again, feels weird to even say, because we think of the Bible as, as the Gospels, right? We think, many Christians would think of the Bible as starting with Jesus. And again, this is not a, this is more important than the other, but what you have to understand is the cross and, and the sacrifice and all these elements that we think of for the New Testament, well, they come to us in the book of Exodus. And the other thing, too, is, and we'll share a little bit, uh, hopefully unpack a little bit more about this, but the book of Exodus is actually, it's more, it actually gives us a, a better framework for the rest of the Bible than even the book of Genesis. And, and I, I'll share a little bit about that this morning. Genesis is, of course, the first book of the Bible 
but we don't get the law. We don't get the, uh, the revelation of who God is uh, in the book of Genesis. What we get is the fall and the repercussions of the fall, but we don't actually get to the redemptive story, which is actually in the book of uh, Genesis. Uh, Silverio Gonzalez uh, says this about the book of Exodus. Exodus shapes both Jewish and Christian identity. Its themes are a major part of the Psalms and the Old Testament prophetic books. Many themes in Exodus are taken up in the New Testament and displayed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. I mentioned to you guys last week that um, I actually purchased, for the first time, a commentary on the book of Exodus that's written by a rabbi. Right? It's, 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 it's a complete rabbinical commentary on the book of Exodus that doesn't presuppose Jesus, because, of course, uh, rabbis wouldn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Now, the reason I did so is because the book of Exodus has a great deal of importance to the Jewish people, right, to Judaism. Judaism would, would hearken itself right back to the book of Exodus. So as I've been studying the book of Exodus, I realized that as I look at commentaries, and again, commentators, whether they realize this or not, always go to Jesus or always go to these New Testament themes. But I'm always curious about is, how do the people who the book was in initially written to, how do they experience this? What, what are their thoughts? And I will say this, even as I started studying this rabbinical commentary, I've had to kind of open up some Wikipedia pages as well, too, because I don't understand some of the things you're talking about as well. And so I, can, I just can imagine a Jewish person, when a Christian talks to them, they're like, some of the things you're talking about don't, doesn't make any sense to me. But I think it's important to recognize that some of the things that are happening in the book of Exodus really have its context in a Jewish thought. And we as Gentiles, we miss a lot of it. Like, for example, when we get to the 10 plagues, it's going to blow your mind exactly what God was actually doing. Because we look at the 10 plagues and we see what happens, but we, we forget that the 10 plagues are actually responses to something else. And no spoilers here, but when we get to it, we'll get to it. You'll see exactly how the Jewish people, when they read the 10 plagues, they understand intrinsically what, God, what Yahweh was trying to do, but we Gentiles might miss out on that. So the book of Exodus is actually a fascinating book, and it's a very deep book. That's why we're going to do it in two parts. But there are two problems to the book of Exodus. So the first problem is history, right? So if you were to go online and just look at the history of Exodus, and this is an article that, that appeared on BeliefNet. It was anonymous, uh, but uh, this is what they say about the book of Exodus. Knowing the Exodus is not a literal historical accounting, does not ultimately change our connection to each other or to God. Faith should not rest on splitting seas. So what's interesting is that if you were to kind of just, just Google the book of Exodus, you know, uh, a lot of articles will appear, depending on the algorithm, but basically on how the book of Exodus is not actually history. And so this is the first problem we have to kind of address. And uh, again, I'm only going to do it briefly this morning. And we have to acknowledge what we can't actually say about the book of Exodus. So, you know, I always look at the book of Exodus, or I look at the Bible, and I've said to you this before, that uh, I have seen the Bible as a historical document. But the book of Exodus presents some problems for that historicity. And we have to kind of go, hmm, what, what expectations can we have of the book? And what expectations can we not have of the book? So the first thing we need to understand about the book of Exodus and, um, is that it, what, what it actually does say. So uh, Richard Elliott Friedman, an Egyptologist, someone who studied this area for a great amount of, a, a number of decades, is this. There is an assertion that we've combed the Sinai and not found any evidence. 
That assertion is just not true. There have not been any major excavations in the Sinai, and I'll show you why that's, that's, that, that's the issue. So archaeology is a study of ancient civilizations, but archaeologists don't just wander out into fields and say, okay, we're start digging here, right? They look for buildings. They look for habitation. They look for something that acknowledges that there was actually uh, a group of people that lived there, and then they start digging, which, again, makes sense because you don't want to just start digging wherever you start digging. And so... One of the things about the, about the Exodus is, is that the major part of it is going to happen in the Sinai. And I'll show you in a second why this is actually really difficult. But there haven't been any actual excavations in the Sinai because, A, it's a desert, so it's always shifting. We've, we know um, archaeologically that there are civilizations that have disappeared under there, and we've never gotten to them. We know through other secondary sources that these, thing, these places existed in this place, but we have no proof of it. So the expectation, and this is where you kind of, when you read some of the uh, archaeologists talking about it, the expectation that you would find anything in the Sinai is a little bit unrealistic, and I'll actually unpack that a little bit more. R. R. Alan Cole, again, another Egyptologist who studies this area, says this. Egyptian monarchs were never given to recording defeats and disasters, and certainly not the loss of the chariot brigade during the pursuit of runaway slaves. So when we look at the Egyptian culture, and we have a lot of information on Egypt and the Egypt Egyptian culture, but what we also know about the Egyptian culture is that it was a very much a, a proud culture, and, and they never recorded their defeats. So even it's interesting, there's a, there's a battle between the Egyptians and the Hittites, and it's recorded in Hittites uh, uh, history, and the Hittites record how they absolutely defeated the Egyptians. But we actually found a corresponding, corresponding um, account of the Hittite victory, but the Egyptians didn't talk about it as a defeat. They said that the, uh, the pharaoh heroically withdrew the troops without loss of life which was not true. The Hittites almost decimated two-thirds of the Egyptian army, and the pharaoh pulled out a third. But again, the Egyptians were not one to say, this is where we've been defeated. So in how we understand what, it, what will take place with the Jewish people living amongst the Egyptians, whatever is going to happen there, there is reasons why the Egyptians are not going to actually record it. Now, with the Sinai, one thing you have to understand is the Sinai Peninsula, it, it, it covers 61,000 kilometers square. Now, just to give you an idea of the spacing of that, um, it's a really cool website. If you ever want to waste some time, which I did, is, is, you, is you put in a, a plot of land, and they will tell you what other plots of land will actually be in comparison to size. So, for example, the Dominican Republic is 0 0.81 uh, the size of the, uh, of, the, of the Sinai Peninsula. Denmark, Lake Michigan, Netherlands, Nova Scotia, I thought I had some... CanCon content in there in West Virginia, right? So in other words, when you see these other places, the, in, the size of the Sinai Desert and, and the Sinai Peninsula is enormous. So it's, of course, when we think of archaeological digs, you have to realize that you're not actually going to find something. And also realizing as well, too, the time period for the uh, Hebrews in the Sinai wasn't about building anything, right? They were just moving from place to place. They never stopped, and the only building they had was something called the tabernacle, and they packed it up with them, and they took it with them. So when we talk about this idea of there's lack of archaeological evidence, the, the truth is there absolutely is. But would we expect there to be archaeological evidence? The answer is probably not, because this group of people would not have left anything. So the only thing they would have left is their, is their garbage and, you know, like bones of animals they would have eaten. And then again, we know that time would not have kept that for us anyways, right? But I'll show you there's actually a bit more of that as well, too. 
there is actually an Egyptian source that actually, that actually mentions the Hebrews amongst the, amongst the Egyptians, which again, Egyptologists, again, some of them would say, well, we have no record at all, and that's absolutely not true. I'm going to show you three records of the Egyptians talking about the Hebrews amongst them. But the only uh, contemporary Egypt, uh, Egyptian source which actually mentions Israel is the stela, which is like a, like a, like a, like a pillar uh, with the inscription of King Merenephtah from the fifth uh, year of the reign, 1207 BCE. So the 12th to 13th century BCE is approximately when we believe the story of Exodus took place. Recording amongst his many victories, and this is a quote from the, uh, the pillar, carved off is Ashkelon, seized upon Gezar. Israel is laid waste to seed no more. This inscription implies that in an entity named Israel existed in Canaan at that time. It was, just, it was difficult to uh, determine precisely what it was. So remember, Israel in Exodus were slaves. So they're not building anything. They're building something for others. And again, we'll get to that as well, too. So in Egyptologists will say, well, the lack of evidence by pillars, by, by monuments, shows that they weren't there. But that's actually not true because that wasn't their role there. But we do still have some inscriptions of that as well, too. Uh, another one we found is something called um, um, uh, something called the uh, a third century BECE Egyptian priest named Manatheo. We found a, a papyrus about his story, and this is what he says about it. He says this. First, he tells of a group called the Hiskos. Now, remember as well, too, the Egyptians are going to call the Hebrews something different. So their name is not going to be the Hebrews, but it's going to be uh, uh, transliterated to what the Egyptians would be. So the Hiskos would be what they would call them, who came from Canaan. They overran Egypt, were driven out, went back to Canaan, and ultimately settled in Jerusalem. In other words, the Hiskos are the Israelites, Jews, in Manatheo's thinking. So again, it's, it's not definitive proof that Moses and all of this took place, but what it does tell us is that they were aware of these people at around the time period that this is supposed to happen. Now, and secondly, he says this, Osiriseph had previously served at the temple of the sun god in Helopolis, the biblical An, and he gave the lepers a new religion that was hostile to the Egyptian religion. They despised the Egyptian gods and sacred animals, which they slaughtered, roasted, and ate. Now, important part here. Manatheo is actually using a derogatory term, lepers. Okay? Now, the reason he does that is to, is to note that this people would be unclean. They, they would never be a population of lepers. That's not, it's, it's impossible. But Manatheo is interjecting how unclean these people were. And the other thing you have to remember as well, too, as Egypt was a monarchy and was, was the, the totality of Egypt, uh, Egyptian culture was based upon their religion. So any group that would reject their religion inside of Egypt should make you take note because we don't have any other re uh, another group of people like that within Egyptian history, uh, as far as I've been able to tell and, and read through. Now, I haven't read the through the entire Egyptian history. Now, the other thing we found out is something called the Great Harris Papyrus. They call it the Great Harris Papyrus because it's, it's long. It's like 20-something feet long. And in it, there is actually some interesting, there's some, some tantalizing clues. The Harris Papyrus says this. Other times came afterwards in the empty years, a Levantine, a Karu, and, 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 and so Levantine, Levite, right? With them, a self-made Irsu prince, and I'll explain to you what self-made means, why it's important. He set the entire land as tributary before him. One joined his companion that their property might be plundered. Now, self-made is important because Moses wasn't a hereditary prince of the Pharaoh. 
So what's interesting in Egyptian culture is if from royalty, your father's name is given first and then your name to show uh, the family. But because Moses didn't have a father, he was drawn from the water. And again, spoiler alert. Uh, so he's, he would be in the Egyptian culture self-made. So they would have given him Pharaoh's name because he's not actually, Pharaoh wasn't his father. So the fact that somebody in Egyptian culture uh, uh, ascended to royalty but was called self-made is an adoption. And just so you know, Egyptians didn't adopt. Okay, So this, this is very peculiar for Egyptian culture. This group under the aegis of a man described as Ursu, the self-made man, acts with contempt toward the Egyptian gods. They treated the gods like the people and no offerings were presented in the temples. Now, again, please hear what I'm saying here. I am not showing you definitive proof of the historical setting of, of Exodus. But what I am showing to you that there is some tantalizing evidence that shows us that there was a disruption around the 12th and 13th century in Egyptian culture, which no other... And what's interesting is, so Egypt wasn't enclosed with itself, so there's Hittites, there's Syrians, there's all other cultures around there. And if we saw that the Assyrians invaded Egypt and conquered them, we'd go, oh, okay, here's the disruption. Problem is, we don't have any other acknowledgement of a war that took place where the Egyptians were conquered. So whatever's taking place as far as the disruption is internal. And so this actually asks us a question, what could happen in the 12th century BCE in Egypt that would be internal? And of course, we go, well, the book of Exodus kind of fits the narrative. Uh, Mark D. Jansen, PhD at the University of Memphis, whose specialty is Egypt, says this. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, I skipped ahead of there. Um, this is where actually, remember I said to you that the Sinai, we haven't found any archaeological evidence in the Sinai, but what we have found is, uh, is, is, is pottery, right? Pottery does last, and so the, uh, Egyptologists have found this. Egyptologists agree that those delta sites, this is the Sinai Peninsula, have been excavated, reveal that Semites clearly lived there during the New Kingdom, and again, the, the time frame there. For example, archaeologists have found Canaanite goods in several burials in the Delta region. Furthermore, the textual record echoes this. Papyrus Anastasi 6, which dates on the reign of his name there, I can't pronounce it, reports on the presence of Semites who were permitted to pass through Egyptian border forts to water their flocks. Such Egyptian texts refer to these foreigners with generic terms like Asiatic and not specific ones as Hebrew or the like. Now, why this is important is Egypt was not just like a center of, 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 of a city. They had border patrols. So anybody passing from that would have been recorded. And again, in the scroll, a Asiatic number six, there is a record of Semites, of Le Levantines, of Hebrews, asking for permission to water their goats. And again, this corresponds with the, with, the, with, the, with the Jewish people leaving from there. Now the quote from uh, Mark D. Jansen, and this is what he says. When set in the proper ancient context, the details of Moses' life as recorded in the Pentateuch provide many details that fit with what we generally know about ancient uh, Near Eastern Egyptian history and practice, particularly during the second millennium BC, again, the time frame of it, thereby lending credibility to the biblical account. Christians have good reasons to affirm that Moses was a historical figure. Now, why am I doing all this? Because I realize that there are people sitting here, perhaps, here or theater number two or at home or maybe perhaps we'll watch this at a later date i never assume that i'm preaching to people who agree with me right I, i'm never assuming that everyone thinks the way i think therefore it's important for me to kind of give you at least the basis for what i'm about to say about the book of exodus 
And the, what I'm going to say about the book of Exodus is that it is a historical document and that it is also an accurate historical document. And, I, and it, like, I, 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 at UCC, I'll never say to you, just believe or just have faith. I'll say though that, that about you know, aspects of our lives that we are going through, for sure. But when it comes to the Bible, I, I just, again, to reiterate, there are so many reasons why we get to say about the Bible that it is, it is a unique historical document. As somebody who has studied world religions, and I've spent about 15, 18 years really intensively studying other religions, I keep coming back to how amazing the Bible is as a historical document. So which, again, I'm always happy about. So the history of the, of the book of Exodus is the first kind of speed bump we have to get over. The second one is a little bit of interesting, and that's the supernatural aspect of it. So when we talk about this idea of supernatural, what the, what's interesting is our culture, as it becomes more and more secular, looks to ancient documents, especially the Bible, and says about it that, mm, you know, these parts of the Bible, you know, I'm okay with it. Jesus as a teacher, the Beatitudes as a golden rule, as a way of thinking, we like that. But this other stuff, not so much. Um, Joseph C. Summer, the American Humanist Association, says this. By claiming that supernatural beings intervene in the world, the Bible opposes a scientific principle of natural laws operating uniformly and unvaryingly. As a result, the Bible discourages a scientific approach to problems. When examined in the light of experience and reason, the Bible's claims about supernatural occurrences do not warrant belief. And this is actually true. So when I have conversations with atheists or agnostics or anyone else, and one of the things they'll say to me at the very beginning is like, listen, just so you know, I don't believe in anything supernatural. My response isn't, oh, oh I, you, you poor person. It's like, okay, I get that, right? I get that. Like that, that, that doesn't bump me as, many, as much as people think it should bump me. It's, it's actually a starting point by which we have a conversation, right? Uh, Ralph Lewis, a psychologist, this is from Psychology Today, on, on writing about the book of Exodus, is this. Exodus, it's mythology almost in its entirety from start to finish. So we can, people who do not believe in the supernatural will look at the book of Exodus and go, I, I, I don't think so, right? I don't, I don't think so. It's, 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 it's a story told to frighten children and, and, and to portray some sort of ethical uh, uh, way of living, but it's, it's, it's not actually real, right? Um, this is actually something kind of in interesting that's happening to the Bible. Um, back in the late 80s, early 90s, um, and again, for those of you who are under 20 or 20-ish, please forgive me. Um, but what's interesting, there was something called a Jesus Seminar, and of course it comes out of California. And it, what, it, what it was about 140 uh, so-called experts. What's fascinating about the experts is that one of the experts on the panel was a guy named Paul Verhoeven. And if you don't know who Paul Verhoeven is, his only claim to fame is he, he directed the movie called Showgirls. Please don't watch it. Uh, but he's not a biblical expert in languages or anything like that. But he was on this panel called the Jesus Seminar. And there's only really two people of the Jesus Seminar uh, panelists that were actually people who have uh, knowledge of original languages and manuscripts and all that there. But the Jesus Seminar set out to discover from the four Gospels, what did actually Jesus say? And look, what's interesting here. Many, if not most of the members of the Jesus Seminar did, dismissed out of hand and a priori uh, any biblical claims of supernatural events, such as Jesus performing miracles arising from the dead. In the resulting work, and this is a book you can, you can read, it's called The Five Gospels, they claim that only 18% of the sayings attributed to Jesus in the New Testament Gospel were actually spoken by him. So one of the things they did is that when they looked through the Gospels, is anything that miraculous happens, they said, okay, that didn't happen. Because their presumption was the supernatural doesn't exist. 
So when they're going through the, the words and the works of Jesus, well, if you take out the supernatural, 18% seems like actually a pretty good percentage-wise if you think about it, right? And so what was fascinating, and, and the other things too they took out is any mention of divinity, of any mention of Jesus uh, being the Son of God or divine or the ability to forgive, all those were gone, right? So this is actually something that's happening today in our culture. Now, what you have to understand about the book of Exodus, and we're going to go through it, is the book of Exodus has more supernatural events in it than any other book of the Bible. This includes the Gospels. Right? So when we walk through the book of Exodus, a lot is going to happen. And skeptics, atheists, those who perhaps um, adhere to the scientific method as, as, a, as a, in, a, with religious fervor, you're going to be bumped by the book of Exodus. You're going to kind of go, hmm. You know, again, if you want to look at the Bible as a moral way of living, sure. But if you, if you take the Bible as in its entirety and its honesty, then you have to acknowledge the supernatural aspects of it. Um, a guy named Oswald Aulis came across an article he wrote. It says this. The conflict is ultimately between theism and anti-theism, between thoroughgoing theism of the Bible and the naturalism that ignores God or denies him completely. The issue is clear-cut. Shall we meet it squarely or shall we compromise or surrender? But many today are unwilling or afraid to take that uncompromising position. Either they're not sure it is defensible or they ha are afraid of giving offense or, um, or of appearing ridiculous to the worldly wise. So have you ever had this conversation? If, if someone finds out you're a Christ follower or you believe in God or you, you read the Bible, well, isn't it interesting how the next thing, like, oh, you don't actually believe that, do you? I, I had this conversation uh, again uh, a while ago, and the person said to me, well, you don't actually believe Jonah was swallowed by a fish. I said, well, no, it wasn't a fish, and let me explain to you w why that's wrong. But apart from that, yes, I actually, I, I actually believe that to be something that actually happened. <laughs> oh, you poor pastor. If you had a real degree or if you had actually some real, read some real books, you would know how foolish you are. Well, but this is something that happens to us as Christ followers today, that the world can look at us and they would ask us to view the Bible through their eyes, through their platforms of understanding. And the supernatural is absolutely a part of it. But what's interesting is that <clears throat> the world would say to us that we've, because we've now, we are now civilized and we've progressed in, in science and technology, we no longer have that. I came across this survey. Um, it's an ISPAS uh, survey from Canadians. I think it's always good to have Canadian content, right? It's always f hard to find Canadian content. But what I liked about this one is from June 9th, 2021. So uh, it's pretty recent. I, I don't have to go back to the 70s. But uh, look what it says in the, in the, in the survey. It says this. Haunting numbers from the new ISPAS poll from Blue Ant Media reveals that nearly half of Canadians believe in ghosts or supernatural beings, while a further two in ten are unsure, leaving just one in three firm skeptics. So what's interesting is, as we kind of navigate through this world, what we're finding in our culture is more and more people believe in something else. I, I shared this a while back, and I was going to go down this rabbit hole, but I'm not. But even when you look at atheist views, like many atheists believe in UFOs. And again, you want to believe in UFOs? I'm a big fan of Star Wars. Uh, I like Star Trek. And if you want to believe in UFOs, great. But whenever I say to somebody who believes in UFOs, can you show me any proof? And again, a fuzzy black and white picture or something like that doesn't really kind of count. But if you believe that, that's fine. But just so you know, that belief isn't, isn't upon firm foundation of scientific proof. 
it's, it's upon a supposition or, or an inference. And again, ghosts, right, or contacting the dead. Believe it or not, many, many people in our culture believe that. And again, they would call themselves atheists. Even scientific people can be superstitious as well. The point simply is, is what humanity has is this acknowledgement that there is a world beyond our understanding. And there can be a dismissiveness of our culture to go, oh, if you believe that, well, then you obviously have, you know, you know, you're mistaken or you're ignorant or you're uncivilized or you're any. And again, there's a whole host of things they can say to us. And as Christians, we get, we get very paranoid. We get very insecure very quickly, right? It's like, well, uh, you know. And again, this is the part, right? As soon as you give in on one part, the rest of it just becomes negotiable. And again, I understand people's heads. Like, one of the things I, I make sure I try to do when I have conversations with people who are not Christians, who, who, who don't come from that background, is I'll say something like this to them. Like, I understand your skepticism, and I understand your disbelief. I, however, do not share it. Let's have that conversation, but we will have to agree to disagree. Because once they'll push you into, well, Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Oh, the ten plagues are just metaphors. Or Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And as soon as you give in, believe it or not, they've got you. They've got you because you cannot backtrack that, right? And so that's what he means about this idea of, of, of uncompromising. And the thing with Western Christianity that I find so fascinating is, is that we've taken the supernatural out of what, what is to be a Christ follower, right? Salvation is a supernatural event. Faith is a supernatural event. Forgiveness is a supernatural event. Church is a supernatural community. A guy by the name of Dr. Michael Heiser says this, that modern Christians are selectively supernatural. And I think that's absolutely true. There's things that we go, oh, yeah, like, you know, if, 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 if the worship team sings one of our favorite songs, oh, we feel God's presence. But if they sing a new song or, or it doesn't quite go properly, oh, well, God's presence is fled like a, like a timid little bunny, right? It's like we, we selectively feel the supernatural part of it, right? And I just want you to know something. I understand that. Like, I understand that we can, f our, our, our emotions can be ways that we would discern supernatural. But I would say to you as a Christ follower, that if, if in fact you are, this idea of supernatural is part and parcel to who and what we are. Right? Like, so when people say to me, I don't feel forgiven. And again, as a pastor, I hear that phrase more than almost any other phrase. Right? And again, I've said this before, again, please forgive me for a repetition, but it's the habitual sins or the repetitive sins that we don't feel forgiven for. But what you have to understand is that forgiveness is a supernatural event. You are not asking for forgiveness based upon how good you are, how well you understand the Bible, or how much you feel you deserve to be forgiven. If we look at how the Bible approaches forgiveness, it is based upon what Jesus did, not upon what you feel about yourself. And I get the idea of the repetitive parts. Oh, I get it. Like, you wouldn't even believe I get it. Right? It's like, oh, Lord, I'm asking for forgiveness, something that I've done, like, multiple times before and may do in the future. Right? But again, that, that kind of leans into more of our emotional state of theology than it is the acknowledgement of, of what Jesus did. So... St. Augustine says it this way, and I think he's absolutely correct. Miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature, right? Supernatural means above the natural. So it's almost impossible 
to prove the supernatural by the natural. By the way, if you want to read a great book about it, uh, Miracles by C.S. Lewis, he does such a fantastic job of kind of walking through that in the skepticism of uh, culture. But what we have to understand as well, too, is the early church, they had no problem with this. As a matter of fact, what the early church looked at in regards to growth in God was by the power of God. Right? Like, like time and time again, what Scripture says, the power of God is what is going to transform me. How often have you decided that you are going to think good thoughts? Or I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not, I've decided by willpower alone I will no longer do this behavior. How's that work out for you? And if you're human like me, the answer is not very well. And this is where we have to understand is that whatever our spiritual development looks like, if we do not acknowledge there, there is a supernatural aspect of it, then all you're doing is wrestling with yourself, and you will always, you will always fail. Like, I, 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 I wish as a pastor, like, I wish I could tell you after 50 years of, of being on this planet, I figured it out. Oh, sweet, merciful, I would love to tell you that. I just want, I'm here to tell you right now, I have not. I have not. I have not figured it out yet. But what I am leaning on more and more, and in the update, the UCC moment, if you haven't scanned the uh, QR code, I, you know, uh, I read it. But one of the things I've, I've, I'm acknowledging more and more in my own life, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. <laughs> that's, that's my battle cry. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Right? That, that's it. Right? And, but what I'm acknowledging is that without Jesus' power, without his work, without what he claimed about himself and what he claimed about me and about what he wants to do in me, apart from that, I can do nothing. I don't have enough willpower. I don't have enough intelligence. And I certainly don't have enough emotional reservoir to transform myself. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. And so as Christ followers, we have to realize that this is a supernatural work. Okay, so as we get to the book of Exodus, these are the two things that, in my mind, come will bump us, okay? Now let's get to the three themes of the, the, what the uh, book of Exodus is going to ask us. So the book of As Exodus is going to ask us time and time again is, who are you? The second, the second thing it's going to ask us is, what do you worship? And the third theme that you're going to see throughout the book of Exodus is, what are you becoming? So let me just unpack these, uh, hopefully quickly. Um, so the question of who are you, right? So who are you is a question of identity. We are talking in our culture more and more in the last, I think, the last few years, more about identity than I think we've ever had before. And again, great conversation. Right? Again, I always love hearing people's thoughts on these type of things, even if I agree with them or not. Uh, but I just want to know what is it that the, what's the zeitgeist of culture? What is it people are thinking about? Right? Well, identity is one that keeps coming back up. Right? And, and so how do we identify ourselves? What, what, what metrics do we use? What is it that, that, that separates us? These are all questions we have. Right? So an identity is, is who or what a person is. Your identity is how you define who you are to yourself and to others and wrestling with the disconnect between those two realities. It is how we navigate our world and what decisions we make. So apart from asking me, asking yourself, what do I do? The question you first have to ask yourself is, who do I believe I am? Because once you answer that question, then all your decision-making behavior kind of flows from that. Exodus will ask this question of the main characters, two nations, and ultimately us today. As we go through the book of Exodus, you have to realize that time and time again, God, Yahweh, he's going to ask this question of, of certain people, people who are 
who have forgotten who he is, people who don't believe he exists, and people who just want to be left alone, right? This, uh, this question of identity is, is important. And what you have to understand, like, remember, the book of Exodus builds on Genesis, right? What's the first identity that we get, uh, you know, from the, 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 the book of Genesis? The first identity we get is that we are made in, in, in God's image. So the Latin term for that is imago Dei. Right? And if you come from a liturgical or, or mainline church background, the Mago Day is a beautiful concept that they have, they have hashed out. We evangelicals are a little, little bit more shallow in that. But the Mago Day, the image of God, is, is how we view ourselves. And the image of God simply means that we are image bearers of God. And that means a whole host of implications from that. But a couple of chapters later, we are banished. So what that means to us is that image of God is broken in all of us. It's like if you take a mirror and you smash it. Don't do it, but if you do so, right? There's parts of it that stay up and parts of it that shatter on the ground. And when you look at yourself in that mirror, you see pieces, but we don't see the entire picture. Well, that's what the image of God is in us right now. It's broken, but it is shattered just like that image there, right? But the book of Genesis, that image, that, that idea of identity is also going to be built upon. Remember I said the book of Genesis I don't think is a foundation of the Bible, but it is still part of a conversation of what God is going to reveal in the book of, uh, of Exodus. So the first thing we understand about like, this idea of who you are is, is God chooses a guy named Abram, and he makes him Abraham. Just to remind you, the ha comes from covenant. Remember I told you that in covenant, and again, this is where we get the marriage ceremony from, is when two people make a covenant, there is an exchange of names. So Abram and Sarai, they make a covenant with, I use the word Yahweh, but that's not actually how you pronounce it. It's Yahweh, right? The ha part is in the middle there. So Abram goes from Abram to Abraham. Sarai, and I love the fact that a woman is included in the covenant, and this is where the Bible just, again, is, is always ahead of the game, right? Sarai goes from Sarai to Serha, right? Again, to the Jewish people, they understand this. So God's covenant with Abraham and Serha is he's taken a piece of his name, the Ha, the Yahweh, and he's given it to them. So now their identity goes from just wanderers, nomadic people living in a cruel world, to now covenant bearers of Yahweh. But it, it gets even better, because as we go further to the book of Genesis, we get to the guy named Jacob. Right? Jacob wrestles with the angel, right? Well, Jacob's name after that, that wrestling match becomes Israel. Again, you see how God takes identity and he transforms it. He changes it. And again, it's going to be even more pushed out in, uh, in the book of Exodus. The other question, finally, of course, is what do we worship? A guy by the name of Greg Beal wrote a book, a fantastic book called We Become What We Worship. And this is what Greg Beale says. He says, God accepts that humans have indeed breached the creator-creature distinction. Not that humans have now become gods, but they have, now, but they have chosen to act as though they were defining and deciding for themselves what they will regard as good and evil. Therein lies the root of all other forms of idolatry. We deify our own capacities and therefore make gods of ourselves and our choices and all their implications. One of the things we forget about this idea of religion is, is religion has, was supposed to be transcendent. And transcendent means apart from us. And what that transcendence was, was going to give us a morality that wasn't going to be based upon emotion. 
So what's great about morality based upon emotion is I, I do what I feel like. I do what's right in the moment. I speak my truth. These are all fantastic statements, but they're all, well, our culture is basically the, the culmination of these statements, right? And so what is interesting, what Greg Beale is saying is what we worship is actually what we believe to be a God. Right, And so whether we're Christ followers or atheists and whatever the spectrum is in between, whatever other religions we are, what we decide is right and wrong is actually historically been the realm of gods. So it, again, it's, it's, it's no wonder why Christians or the culture now says, because I am a god, I will define what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is not. And again, this is biting us in the, uh, I don't know really a Christian way of saying it, but it's biting us in, 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 in the, it's biting us. Uh, that's the best way I can do it. This is being recorded, and uh, um, it's biting us in the sense that culture today, right now, everybody's saying to themselves, this is what I think is right. And again, please hear me very clearly. More sympathetic, I could not be to that sentiment. But the unfortunate part is that can actually have some pretty far-reaching consequences to how we interact with one another in regards to civilization and the fact that it's civility. Greg Beale goes on to say this in his book. What people revere they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. I love that statement. You become what you worship. And this is the part of us that we just have to realize, and this is why at UCC we try, I don't know if we always succeed, but we try to, like, we try to have this idea of worship to be bigger than just songs we sing. Again, I've said this before. At UCC, we don't do spiritual karaoke, right? I'm not as interested whether you know the song that's being sung or the skill levels of the musician. It's not what really bothers me. What bumps me is if you are not able to worship, because worship is not based upon the songs that are sung. It's the worth of our creator. If God is worthy of worship, then whether it's me on spoons, which, by the way, would <laughs> be a fantastic worship service, like, like, like that, I, I don't know how that's possible, but, or if it's like a full orchestra or, or, or whatever, like, it, it doesn't matter. I've had the opportunity as a pastor, and I, I'm so grateful for these opportunities to see worship in different contexts, right? I, I've seen worship at different parts of the world. I was saying this to somebody, I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but when I went to Uganda, and uh, we were part of a, a church service there, Again, Westerners, we are too obsessed with time, right? Uh, the pastor, you know, we, we sit in our schedule. Church starts at 10 o'clock. So we as a team, you know, about 20 of us, we're there at the church at 930, setting up our, our whatever we had to set up. And 10 o'clock, <laughs> nobody showed up. And we're like, and we're sitting there, and of course, it's hot. And we're the only ones wearing suits and ties and like whatever dumb stuff we have to do. Anyways, and we, I said to the pastor in the most gentle way possible, so when are going to people show up? when they feel like it. <laughs> oh, okay. And, and about 10.30, 10.35, they started trickling in. And about 11 o'clock, they started worshiping. And of course, because we're Westerners, we had a worship list. Well, we got one song out, and this woman comes up from the audience and grabs a mic out of our worship leader and says, I would like to sing God's place upon my heart. And I would, I'm doing a really bad accent. I'm so sorry. I apologize. Uh, I, I didn't even mean to. That was just uh, so no offense uh, intended. She goes, I would like to sing a song that God's placed upon my heart. And she starts leading the song. And our musician's like, no, no, we practiced this song. We don't have this song ready. So they just put their, their, their instruments down, and other people came up and took them up. And so for the next 45 to, I think, 50 minutes, people from the congregation just came up and started leading worship. And, you know, 
us white people, uh, well, not me, but you, the Westerners, we're sitting there going, I don't know what's going on here. What is the serving of the story? What time? And I'm hungry. Is lunch happening soon, right? And, and, and it just what was so beautiful about it is that worship wasn't confined to this, here's our three songs, and this is what we're going to sing, and we've all practiced it. It's like, no, no, these, like, could you imagine coming to a worship service where I said, okay, we got no band up here. Who wants to come lead a song that God's placed upon your heart? I guarantee you that next week we'll have not as many people here as we would think we would have, right? Because it would just freak us all out. But they saw, and I, I, I had a conversation with a pastor afterwards. I said, so, like, what was that? He's like, well, we feel that worship is a community thing. And that it just, if God places upon our heart this gift or a song or a word, we just want to share it. I thought, oh, you guys are so, f- you, you, you guys are like so far ahead of us in regards to understanding worship. I just, it was, it was so, it was, it was beautiful. It was uncomfortable. It was uncertain. I kept having to assure my group, like, just, just go with it. I just kept saying, just go with it. Matter of fact, that became our mantra for the week. Just go with it. Because whatever plans we made, they were just kept thrown out the window. Why? People over-programmed, Right? Western churches, it's programs over people, buildings over people, budget over people, performers over people. But over there, and again, that's just not just Uganda. When I was in Ecuador, uh, when I, uh, places I've been, it's people over everything. I thought, oh, Lord. I, I, like, literally, I always repent. I always ask for forgiveness that, like, we, that we just haven't figured that out yet in the Western churches. That's why if you come to UCC, just please understand. Um, hopefully won't have somebody who just pick up the guitar that morning to play guitar for you, but their skill level is not really what's important to me. It's their hearts. It's their willingness to serve just to lead us in a congregation piece of worship. And whether we sing hymns, I love, or we sing a new one like, like that the other one, I, it's like, it doesn't matter. I was reading the words. I didn't know the song. So you know when you don't know a song, you're like, you sing a little lower. You're welcome that I did that because I didn't know where we were going. But the words are beautiful. Ah, yeah, Lord, you're worthy of worship, whether it's spoons, whether it's, 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 it's another part of the world, or, or whatever it would be, right? And so what we have to understand is, is what we worship is what we become. We don't worship the worship team. We don't worship worship. We don't worship entertainment. We're not that church. There are some great churches in the area, and if you want one of those, I can tell you where to go. But that's not UCC. And again, <laughs> that bites us places. Uh, but it's, it's kind of a part of our, 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 our ethos. We're, again, if you go on our update, there's a little blurb at the top there. Welcome to UCC. We're not here to entertain you. You're not an audience, right? We, we don't. We, we, at UCC, as much as possible, we are going to kill the entertainment part of it as, as, as often as we're able to because that is not what the origins of, wo- of who we are and what we are. Okay, that was way too long. So I mean, I, the idea of worship is worship is focus. Everything is vying for our attention. Everything is vying for our attention. You become what you focus on, right? When we talk about spiritual disciplines, right? Remember at the very beginning of that, the pandemic faith uh, series I did, and again, it's online if you missed it, but the very first part of it, the very first introduction to spiritual disciplines, just create space for God. That's all, that's all a spiritual discipline is, is in the business of your day. If you're a student, you get up in the morning, you're running behind, you're trying to get some food in you or coffee somewhere, and you're trying to get to class. And you gotta, Like, how many times have you gone out the door and you forgot your mask, got to go back in, got to find a mask, right? Like, it's just, it's all of it, right? Well, what happens is from the morning you open your eyes to the time you go to bed at night, God is secondary, third, whatever it might be in your mind. 
What a spiritual discipline does is it says, okay, you know what? At this time of the day, you stop everything and you just go, Lord, I give to you. I, on my phone, I have my midday prayer, 2 p.m. every day. I have a reminder. It says pray. Now, the good news is I've, it's custom routine. I'm already either praying or I'm thinking about that. But really what is a reminder for me, just, okay, midday, just, just, just stop and remember your creator. Right? Like how profound a moment is that? It invites God into whatever circumstances we are. Right? So focus is, is really uh, all about it. And again, when you think about the Bible, the Bible and, and Genesis is, is laying out this idea of worship. The second sin recorded in the Bible was a sin of worship. Cain and Abel, what, it, like the third sin, murder. The second sin, worship. Look what the Bible says. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the first, uh, firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry. He looked dejected. The second sin in the Bible is worship. The third sin is murder. Spoiler alert. Right? So what's interesting is, is the book of Exodus is going to come back to this and ask us time and time again, what do you worship? And what's interesting as well, too, and this is kind of fascinating, just as a, as, 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 as a fun fact, nowhere in the book of Genesis did God tell his creation how to worship him. But what's interesting is, is time and time again, they're building altars, they're pouring oil over stones, they're doing all these things as if there's a conversation behind the scenes that the book of Genesis did not record, right? Don't you find that interesting that time and time again, and again, these are just some examples as I went through the book of Genesis, that worship was an aspect of it. When God appeared, when God spoke, when God made a covenant, when God gave a vision, right? The next step is you worship. And so we become what we worship. Exodus is going to ask us a question, what do you worship? What do you focus on? What do you give your energies to? What is it exactly that you find uh, important? Because whatever that is, that is what you will worship. And the third uh, question is, what are you becoming? We spend so much time on the present and our past, but we rarely stop to consider what we are, where we are going, or more importantly, what are we becoming? Now, depending on which commentary you read, the, the space between the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, and Exodus chapter 1, there's about two to 400 years separation between those two. So when God shows up, he has achieved mythological status, and mythological is not a good thing. Right? He's a myth to the people of Israel. So what's interesting is that what they have become are cultural Jews, right? Cultural Ju Judaism. They know about the stories of Abraham, their forefathers, but it doesn't mean anything to them. So when Yahweh shows up in Exodus, you have to understand, he has to teach them once again what they have forgotten, right? So the primary theme of Genesis is creation, sin, recreation. Exodus is going to take that and magnify it. In the story of Exodus, we will meet nations, people, and see them being recreated with God for good or for bad. Right? For good or for, for bad. And finally, there's a phrase that's going to see, and this is, only, this is the only reference to the book of Exodus I'm going to show you this morning, but God introduces himself to the people of Israel in a certain way. He calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, many of you know that phrase, 
But did you know that that phrase isn't a phrase of identity as it is a phrase of growth and development? Because what they are acknowledging, what God is acknowledging in that phrase, these are the patriarchs of Judaism, is a different levels of growth that God had to the people. The God of Abraham. Who's Abraham? Well, he's the person that God made his first covenant with. The God of Isaac. Who's Isaac? Well, he was the sacrifice and the provision. And the God of Jacob. Who's Jacob? Well, Jacob's name became Israel, and he was the creator of a nation. So who is God to these people? He was the starter of their faith. He is a purifier of their faith. And he is a keeper of who they will become. Right? The question Exodus is going to ask us is, what are you becoming? It's not a question we think about that much. We just go through life. We go, ah, you know, I'm just going to react to what's happening through me, around me, you know, in, in me. Genesis is going to ask that. I'm sorry, Exodus is going to ask that in a different way. Let me close. Because there's one passage of scripture that, that kind of comes to mind. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, And I am certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Now, the reason why this verse keeps coming to mind is Genesis introduces, uh, Genesis introduces us to Abraham. And on that day, God starts something, right? But what's beautiful about Abraham and also what happens in the garden, the curse and the prophecy, is God has not allowed humanity to go without him. And this is what I keep coming back to, is from that day, thousands upon thousands of years ago to today, God's work is still going forward. It's going forward here. It's going forward in Uganda. It's going forward in sub-Saharan Africa. It's going forward in Latin America. It's going forward in China. It's going forward around the globe. His work has not stopped globally, corporately, individually. This is a beautiful thing about the book of Exodus is that in nations and in people, God's work is continuing. And this is what you're going to find as we go through the book of Exodus. And oh, I'm so excited to go through this book with you because I think we've overlooked Exodus to our detriment. I think we've overlooked what Exodus teaches us and what it's going to teach us to our detriment. And I hope that as we walk through the book of Exodus, as we see these men and women encounter their creator, for some of them for the first time, what has been, been a distant memory, mythology to them, gets blown up into real life. And that's what I hope God becomes for us. He moves from myth and well-intentioned idea to our truth and reality. Because I believe our culture is traumatized. I believe that we are experiencing trauma. We have experienced trauma. And I use that word trauma in the most exact way of it. We, our lives have been disrupted. And I think a lot of the behaviors we're seeing is from this idea of PTSD. We, are, we have been disrupted. We have, like, when you see people who, are in tr who have been traumatized, characteristics, lack of trust, hello, right? Lack of civility. Like, there's all these metrics that you would look at as a therapist. That's what you would look at for people. I think that's what our culture is going through. Exodus is going to bring us back to this question. Like, like what do you, where, where do you find truth? In suffering, in pain, in hurt, in all these things, where do you find truth? Because Yahweh, God, Jesus, is going to whisper to us that he's transcended to all these things and that he's going to draw us back to him. He who began a good work will continue it until Christ's return. And that's my prayer. 
that God will continue his good work in me that will only be finished when Jesus returns. So the good news is I am in process. You are in process, right? And that means that process is messy. It's bumps, it's ups, it's downs, it's all these things. But God has promised us that if we allow him to, he will continue the good work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray this morning. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, we do this every week, and I just explain what we're about to do here. I'm not going to ask you to do anything, but I do, I do want you to have a moment of meditation. I realize a lot of content, a lot of information, I get that. But I also get, too, that I don't want you to leave here without just a time of reflection. Has God be, become a myth to you? Has the reality, the vitality of your of your spiritual life, of your of, of who you are, has that has that diminished? Right? The three questions. Who are you? What do you worship? And what are you becoming? These are questions that we as Christ followers desperately need to answer because they're important. It's 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 what we are, it's who we are. And I pray through the book of Exodus that you will recommit, be revitalized in your spiritual lives, to know that your creator has not abandoned you, has not forgotten you, and what you were experiencing, what those around you were experiencing, loved ones that you were experiencing, has not taken God by surprise. He's with you, he walks with you, he's in the midst of that. And Exodus is going to help us to continue this journey with God. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that only you have the strength to continue the good work in me. Lord, I fight against you. We fight against you. We allow sin to take a foothold. We allow apathy, lethargy, distractions, all these things and more to kind of lose focus on what is truly important, and that's you, Lord Jesus. I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that you would remind us that only you deserve our complete focus. Jesus, you are transcendent to us. You call us, you lead us, you continue to work in us. And I just pray, Lord, that you would breathe life into those who perhaps may be feeling low and down this morning, those who struggle, those who are fearful. Lord, those who are anxious about this fall and what's happening. Oh, Jesus, I pray that we would place our trust in you once again. Renew our spirits, Lord. Please allow the book of Exodus, the stories of Moses and, and Aaron and, and all we are going to encounter. Lord, let, let them speak to us. Let them transform us and let us see ourselves in their lives. I ask this in Jesus' name.